musicians and their hard work. It's a great accompaniment to worship to be able to have that fuller sound. People minister the various gifts, skills that God has given to them. How many of you? How many of you have started attending Foothill Bible Church in the last three years? Should raise your hand. And let me know. Okay, that's really good, because what I want to do is I want to welcome you to the book of Romans. <laughs> there are some of you who have come in more recent months, and you have no idea that that's actually what we're doing, is we're preaching through the book of Romans. And today, we are returning to Romans So open your Bibles up there to Romans chapter 1, page 1125, if you're using a pew Bible. We've been on a detour from the book of Romans that was necessitated by a statement that the Apostle Paul made in chapter 11 and verse 25 and 26. And that launched a lengthy, a lengthy what was supposed to be summer series, but you know how those things go. A lengthy series we called Things to Come when we were looking at seven prophetic events awaiting fulfillment. And all of that whole series really sprung, as I say, out of Romans chapter 11 in verses 25 and and 26. And it has always been my intent, after we looked at that side detour there to return back to the book of Romans and to pick up the Apostle Paul's argument and progress the book forward. And so that's really what we're going to do this morning. As I say, we began this series in Romans actually on January 7th, 2007. I look back to see when it all began. And when we began this series, we, we began by me asking or really raising a whole series of of current events in our broken world, just reminding ourselves that this world is very much upside down, that it doesn't work the way God had designed it to work. And I could update all that for you again this morning, but I'm not going to do that because almost three years have passed, and and certainly all you have to do is open up the newspaper, turn on the Internet or the television, and you could find many more examples of a world that is very, very broken. But I did ask at that time when I cited those examples almost three years ago, my question to the congregation, to all of us, was what do we have to offer to a broken world? What is it that we have that they need and that we can can offer to them? Of course, the answer is the gospel. It is the gospel. It is the very message that the Apostle Paul brought to his broken world 20 centuries ago. The Roman world in the first century had dashed their brains out in pursuit of pleasure. Society was broken, violence prevailed, wickedness in high places. It was a colossal mess. And through the Apostle Paul, God's remedy then and now is the exact same thing. It is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is the gospel that Paul says it is the power of God unto what? Salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Gentile. That is, for the whole world. It is the gospel that saves. For it is the power of God. It is the gospel that redeems a human life raises it from the dead spiritually and ultimately physically, sets that person's life on a new path, a new road, empowers that person to now live for God's holiness and glory rather than for their own selfish desires, sinful pleasures. But, beloved, it is not just a gospel for those out there, for unbelievers out there. It is the gospel for all men everywhere at all times. It is the gospel that saves both historically and in a present sense and future. Thus, the gospel is every bit as important for you and I today, right now, this moment, 
as it ever was in the day of your life. The gospel is the conduit through which the power of God flows to broken humanity. Into the book of Romans this morning. The book of Romans is the most systematic presentation of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ to be found anywhere in the scriptures. In the scriptures. It is not the first book written in the New Testament. It's not the first letter written in the New Testament, yet it appears to be the first letter in the canon because it is the doorway, it is the gateway through which we enter into life with Christ. The gospel. Paul says to the church at Rome over in that he can't wait to preach the gospel to them. He says, I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. He's writing to a church in Rome. He's writing to a church. I'm eager to preach it to you, he says. Over in chapter 16, verse 20, gospel, my gospel. Acts chapter 28 and the last couple of verses speak about Paul's captivity in Rome, his first Roman captivity. He preached about the kingdom of God and Jesus Christ to all who would come and listen. It is the gospel of the kingdom that Paul preaches. And as I said, the most, and as I said, the most systematic presentation of the gospel is to be found here in the book of Romans. So what I want to do with us this morning is I want to review the first 11 chapters of the book of Romans. I asked people to pray for me this morning with regard to that. You don't know what a Herculean task this is. I have this past week read through Romans again two times, at least the first 11 chapters of it, to refresh in my own mind that which has gone on here. And as I was reading through it and thinking through it, I got so excited again, I almost wanted to go back to the beginning and start all over again. <laughs> but I didn't think you would you would like that. So I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to do that. Although the more I study this book, I have to tell you, the more my understanding of it grows. The linkages that I see in this book continue to strengthen and deepen. This is a Powerful presentation of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. So I have it for you here this morning in four key statements. Four key statements that Paul really makes here for Romans. And men, by reviewing those, we're going to review the Romans. And men, by reviewing those, we're going to review the gospel. And we're going to review Romans chapters 1 through 11. Get ourselves back into the flow. Next week, we'll begin at chapter 12. And we'll move forward in a much more detailed treatment. I'm calling it Paul's four-part presentation of the gospel. There are many... Any goals that I want to accomplish with you here this morning by doing this, but probably the ultimate goal I want to do for you and me is that we might raise up our hearts together in praise and adoration to God. That's what I'm that's what I want to do. As we as we think on this, I hope your heart begins to just overflow with gratitude and joy for what God has done. It begins. In chapter 1 and verse 18, Paul's gospel confronts human depravity. Paul's gospel confronts human depravity. And he does it here in a, in a threefold way. He begins in chapter 1 with what I'm calling pagan perversity. Beginning in verse 18... And following through to the end of chapter 1, verse 32, and indicting humanity. He is reading the charges against them that he might demonstrate. He is reading the charges against them that he might demonstrate their guilt before the bar of God's justice. And he, he indicts pagan humanity for their ingratitude and for their willful unbelief. 
He says, verse 18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world is invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks. But they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools. Paul says that God has clearly revealed Himself to humanity. He has revealed Himself externally in His witness to the work of His creation, and He has revealed Himself internally through our conscience and through our creation in His image. Genesis 1. People know God. Not that there is a God. They know the God, the true God. All people know Him. But what Paul says is they refuse Him. They suppress the knowledge. They hold it down. They will not allow it to come into their consciousness. They will not deal with it. They push it away. They push it down. And the reason they do that is that their hearts are filled with ingratitude towards God. In the process of refusing Him, they exchange the worship that is rightfully due Him for the worship of His creation. Verse 21. The result of that rebellion is that God removes moral restraint and He gives them over to the increasing blackness of their own defiled hearts. You can see that. Verses 24, 26, and 28. Three times it says, Therefore God gave them over. Verse 26, For this reason God gave them over. Verse 28, God gave them over. Now, when I preached through these verses many years ago, now three years ago, we entitled a rather lengthy series of sermons, The Deep, Dark Descent of Man. And that is exactly what the Apostle Paul lays out here. Pagan humanity is on a downward spiral into debauchery. And one doesn't have to look very far in our culture to see the evidences all around us. He indicts pagan perversity. Chapter 2, Paul indicts Jewish hypocrisy. There are only two kinds of people in the world. There are Jews and Gentiles. And so by indicting Gentiles in chapter 1 and Jews in chapter 2, he has in effect indicted the whole world. He does it. Here in chapter 2, and his indictment is a twofold indictment here. It is number one, that the Jewish people are lightly of the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance. They are thankless as well. Beyond that, they are self-righteous. Beyond that, they are self-righteous. Verse 17, you bear the name Jew, you rely upon the law, and you boast in God. He says that the, the Jewish people are, are ungrateful and they are self-righteous. And because of their ingratitude and their self-righteousness, they fall under the same condemnation. In fact, what they do is that they observe pagan behavior and they rightly condemn it, yet they're guilty of exactly the same thing. Verse 3, do you suppose this, O man, when you pass judgment upon those who practice such things, such things referring back to chapter 1, and do the same yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Answer, absolutely not. Absolutely not. The Jewish error here is is believing that because they had the Mosaic law, God's law, that they had a safe haven into which they could flee and escape His judgment. Really, verses 11 to 16 speak of such things. But in actuality, having 
the law of God increases our accountability or increases their accountability and their condemnation before God. Verses 17 to 21, he speaks of that. The more you know, the more accountable you are for what you know. Preached a lengthy series in this called The Dangers of Growing Up Christian. And I addressed it to the young people of this congregation who are growing up here with all of the benefits of a, of a godly environment. Your back on it is to increase your condemnation. Do not forget, religious pedigree means nothing. God is interested in the heart. That's it. That's it. Chapter 2. So Paul indicts pagan perversity. God indicts Jewish hypocrisy. And then in chapter 3, he kind of pulls it all together. Verses 9 to 20. And he presents a fort. And he presents a fort. Count indictment of human failure. Beloved, God demands righteousness. He demands righteousness. And righteousness is the state or condition of perfectly conforming to God's holy character and law. That is righteousness. To be righteous is to be in perfect conformity to God's holy character and God's holy law, which is an expression of that character. And God demands that of all people. But Gentiles don't have it, chapter 1. Jews don't have it, chapter 2. Pulling it all together here, chapter 3, beginning in verse 10. Paul slams the door on any who might somehow think that they wiggled through the indictment of chapter 1 or chapter 2. As I said, a 14-point indictment. It's very simple. I'll just read it to you quickly here. It begins in verse 10. People are unrighteous. They are ignorant. They are rebellious. They are willful. They are rancid. They are immoral. They are corrupt. They are deceitful. They are dangerous. They are hostile. They are violent. They are destructive. They are restless. And they are arrogant. Maybe I should reread it and say, we are unrighteous, we are ignorant, we are rebellious, we are willful, rancid, immoral, corrupt, deceitful, dangerous, hostile, violent, destructive, restless, and we are arrogant. Because the indictment includes me, and it includes you. All humanity... For there is none righteous, no, not one. This is heavy stuff. This is a heavy duty section of Scripture. To read this is to be ripped open to light of the justice of God. There's no feel-good stuff here at all. And it's not designed to be. It's designed to bring us face to face. It's designed to bring us face to face with the stark reality of our own corruption. Because, beloved, until we understand how hopeless we are, how desperately lost we are, how wicked we really are, how rebellious we really are, how capable of the most vile sin we really are, then the death of Jesus Christ is incomprehensible incomprehensible why would god slay his own son for people who are just a little sick just a little messed up if you go to a jeweler to buy a diamond ring they will place a piece of black velvet on the countertop and they will take out the ring and put it on the velvet all good jewelers understand that the ring shines brightest 
against the blackness of the velvet. The gospel shines brightest against the blackness of the human condition. Paul's gospel confronts us with human depravity. But it doesn't leave us there. It doesn't leave us broken and crushed and hopeless. It provides a way of escape, a means of escape. God has provided such a means. And Paul gives it to us here. His gospel declares justification by faith alone. Chapter 3, verse 21, all the way through the end of chapter 5. Justification by faith alone. This is the heart of the gospel. And it begins here in chapter 3. Now, the word justification or justify is a legal term, and it means to declare someone righteous or to acquit them. It is a legal term. To declare righteous or to acquit someone. Because humanity lacks righteousness, God in His grace has determined to provide that righteousness to them and for them through Jesus Christ. Verse 22, Romans chapter 3. Actually to verse 21, but now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested. Look down to verse 22. Through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe, for there is no distinction. God provides the righteousness that He requires to us through Jesus Christ. And He does it in a twofold legal transaction. A twofold legal transaction. It's simply this God attributes our guilt to Jesus Christ and punishes it on his cross and he attributes Christ's perfect righteousness to us as a robe of righteousness that we might wear. And thus we possess, not inherently, but applied to us the righteousness of Jesus Christ, the righteousness that God requires in order to stand in his presence. Justification by faith alone. The result of this substitution, by the way, is that God's character remains unviolated. That is, he remains just himself, and yet he is able to justify or acquit the guilty. Verse 26. Paul says, the end of the verse, that he, that is God, might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. That is to say that God does not negotiate his law or his holiness. He does not lower the bar so that we can stumble over it. He doesn't look the other way and say, oh, it doesn't matter that you did that. I'm just going to forgive you. God is holy and he demands holiness. All sin must be punished. The wages of sin, as you fill it in, Death. Death. So how can God acquit the guilty and still remain just himself, not become an unlawful judge? The answer is, he punished Christ in our place. In our place. Thus, God is both just and justifier of those who have faith in Jesus Christ. If we had the time, I would take you through here and have you begin circling the word faith that appears all over this section, beginning in verse 21 through, actually all the way through chapter 5. It appears over and over and over again because faith is the means or mechanism by which the grace of God is activated in the life of a sinner. It is by faith. And it is by faith alone. By faith alone. That is, believing that this is God's means of curing the sin problem. We bring nothing to the table. Someone said the only thing you contribute to your salvation is your sin. God does everything else. God does everything else. It is by faith alone, not by works, so that none of us can do what? Boast. That's right. Boast. Paul's gospel declares justification by faith alone there in chapter 3. He begins to illustrate it in chapter 4. 
He illustrates this great principle of justification by faith alone in chapter 4. And he does it by reaching all the way back into the Old Testament, all the way back to the early chapters of Genesis. You see, Paul is not bringing some new teaching, something that contradicts the Word of God in the Old Testament. Paul's message of the Gospel absolutely comports with the Word of God from the beginning. And Paul demonstrates it here in the life of Abraham. So verse 1, what shall we say that Abraham, our forefather according to the flesh, is found? Paul will demonstrate in chapter 4 that justification by faith alone is the means by which Abraham became right in the eyes of God. Verse 3, he cites Genesis chapter 15, verse 6. And he says there that Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. What did Abraham believe? Abraham believed God's promise that he would have a child in his old age. Abraham believed that and God reckoned or credited. It is a financial term and it means to deposit into someone's account. God reckoned it. God credited it. God deposited it into Abram's account His righteousness, God's righteousness, into Abraham's account in response to Abraham's faith. Abraham believed the word of God. God placed on deposit in Abraham's account God's own righteousness. Why? Why? Come on, why? Because Abraham doesn't have any righteousness. Remember chapters 1, 2, and what? Beginning of 3. Beginning of 3. Abraham's right standing is not based on works. Verse 4, if it were based on his works, it would be a wage, not a gift. It would be something he earned. Verses 6 to 8, it is a gift. It is a gift. Beyond that, Paul will, in the rest of this chapter here, demonstrate something incredibly important with regard to us Gentiles, and that is that Abraham exercised this saving faith prior to circumcision. That is, prior to becoming a Jew. Therefore, he stands in for all the non-Jews of all time and all the Jews. Abraham becomes the father of all the believers. Very, very important point Paul draws from Genesis 15, that Abraham's faith is reckoned as righteousness before his circumcision. How does God do this? I mean, how can the action of one person permanently change the future of a multitude of other people? How can that be? Chapter 5. Chapter 5, the method is imputation. The method is imputation. Paul is going to answer that important question. How does the action of one person permanently change the future of a multitude of other people? And he's going to answer it here by looking at back to Adam and his reign of death. And from that, he's going to argue forward to the second Adam, to Jesus Christ and the reign of life. Verse 15. The free gift is not like the transgression. For if by the transgression of the one, the many died, much more did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to many. It is Adam and the reign of death. It is Christ and the reign of life. And the argument here is a, is a simple argument to state. It is an exceedingly mysterious argument to ponder. And that is that God imputes, he imputes or he attributes the guilt of Adam to all his posterity and therefore the death penalty along with it. Adam fall in the garden, Adam's sin in the garden, Adam's willful rejection of the word of God and rebellion in the garden and his resultant death is imputed or attributed to all his descendants forever. That's you and me. Paul is going to argue that based on that reality, therefore God will impute or attribute the righteousness of Jesus Christ to all his children. That is the principle how one man's actions can affect many other people. 
Now, what what renders this imputation even more astounding and amazing and draws forth praise from the people of God is the reality that it was one transgression that rendered a multitude condemned, but it is Christ's righteousness that overcomes a mountain of transgressions to render his people righteous. One mistake by Adam renders all guilty. Christ's righteousness is so super abundant that it offsets and overwhelms not just the one act of Adam, but all of your repeated violations of the law of God and mine too. This is amazing. This is amazing. This is the grace of God. This is the power of God. It overwhelms sin. Look, verse 16. The gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For on the one hand, the judgment arose from one transgression resulting in condemnation. But on the other hand, the free gift arose from many transgressions resulting in justification. The grace of God is so big, it is so powerful that it overwhelms not just the the transgression of Adam, but all transgressions of the people of God for all time. In fact, at the end of chapter 5, the Apostle Paul will make the most amazing statement, and that is where verse 20, sin increased, grace superabounded, or increased all the more. That is sin raised in death, verse 21, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The glory in this, beloved, is that no matter what our sin is, the grace of God snuffs it out. It extinguishes it. It consumes it. It overwhelms it. And we remain righteous in the sight of God. Paul's gospel confronts human depravity. Paul's gospel declares justification By faith alone, third. Third, Paul's gospel promises eternal life. It promises eternal life. Now, when I say eternal life, most people think about life out there someday, somewhere in the future. Yeah, you know, it's it's awful now, but but I'm going to be in glory someday with God. It's going to be so good. It's eternal life. I want life now. I don't know about you. I'm tired of sin now. I want deliverance now. I want to be free from the power and the bondage of sin now. And guess what? The gospel of power is available to me now. I can be free. That is what eternal life is all about. It is not just life someday, somewhere, out there. It is life here and now. It is the life of God in my soul right now and carrying on eternally. Now that's something to get excited about. That's something to get excited about. The free gift of God, Romans 6.23, is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. It is our possession right now. Right now. And so Paul will begin to unfold for us in chapters 6, 7, and 8 this great gift of eternal life. What does it look like? What does it do? Why is it such glorious news? And it begins in chapter 6 with our union with Christ. It begins with our union with Christ. We are saved by grace, yes? Does it matter then how we live here and now? I mean, can we live however we want? Does eternal life have a present reality to it? The answer, Paul would say overwhelmingly, is yes. Yes, yes, yes. So how does Paul unfold this reality for us? Well, he begins here in chapter 6. He begins by reminding them and us of an amazing spiritual truth. That is, that we have been united with Christ in both his death and his resurrection. That is, that somehow in the mysteries of God, we were crucified with Christ and have died to sin and have been raised to walk in newness of life. 
Verse 4. Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death in order that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him and that our body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. Wow. Wow. You see, before the work of Christ in our soul, we're a slave of sin. A slave obeys its master. It has no choice. Whatever the master demands, a slave must do. And Paul says that our, our former state was slavery to sin. That is, we had no choice but to sin. It's who we were. It was the very fabric and nature of who we were. We, we had no choice but to sin. Paul says that's been changed. That has been changed. The slavery has been broken. You have been emancipated. You have died in Christ Jesus and raised to walk in newness of life. Beloved, the truth is, if you know Christ as your Savior this morning, here's the truth. Listen to me. If you don't get anything outside of this, you listen to me on this. Sin no longer has dominion over you. Do you hear what I said? Sin no longer has dominion over you. That is, you do not have to give in. Wow. That's life now. That's life now. It is no longer my master. I do not have to obey it. Verses 7 through 14, Paul lays that out for us. Instead, righteousness is now my master, and I do have to obey that. Verse 18. Freed from sin, slaves of righteousness. See, that's an important point. When we are saved by the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, we go from being a slave of sin, not to a free man to do whatever we want, but we go to being a slave of righteousness, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, one who follows his word and his will. We are never autonomous. We are never autonomous. Now, how do we do this? How do we experience release from the slavery of sin into the bondage of righteousness? What does that look like? Paul says that we are to consider, verse 11, do you see that? It is by faith. We are to consider, we are to believe that we are dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. That is, we are to believe the gospel, that we have died to sin and we are now alive in Jesus Christ. And by faith, we are begin to live in reality. No longer do we live in a land of lies. We live in a land of truth. The reality is we have been freed. And therefore, we are to no longer, verse 13, go on presenting our members to sin as instruments of unrighteousness. That is, we are called upon to act in conformity with our faith. We are to live in accordance with our faith. What does it look like? All over to verse 19, Paul expresses it this way. He says, just like you formerly chased after sin, that is, habitually and eagerly, so now chase after righteousness. Verse 19. Eagerly, habitually, without thought. That's how we once chased after sin. Paul says, now you are free in Christ. You are to chase after righteousness in the same way. Well, pastor, where's the power to do that? You, you don't you don't know how much I struggle. Oh yeah, I do. I do. I struggle. I know exactly how much you struggle. Where is the power to do this, beloved? The power is in the grace of God. It is in the grace of God, ministered to us through the gospel. It is to believe and act. One writer put it this way. He said there are only two choices on the shelf. Pleasing God or pleasing self. There are only two choices on the shelf. Pleasing God or pleasing self. Each and every moment we make a choice. Will we live in faith and conformity to the gospel or will we choose to please ourselves? 
Union with Jesus Christ. Beyond that, chapter 7. Paul addresses in chapter 7 the role of the law. The role of the law. And basically, the argument of chapter 7 is that the law cannot sanctify you. It cannot sanctify you. It cannot kill the power and desire of sin within you. In fact, it only inflames it. Verse 5. For while we are in the flesh, the sinful passions are aroused by the law. Verse 8. But sin, taking opportunity through the commandment, produced in me coveting of every kind. The law does not restrain sin. The law inflames sin in the human heart. Therefore, it is worse than foolish for a Christian to attempt to deal with sinful desires and impulses by placing themselves back under an extensive set of rules and regulations. It is the worst thing we can do. It will not restrict your sin. It will merely inflame it. Paul goes on to demonstrate this, the back half of chapter 7, and he does it. By personifying a weak believer. A weak believer. That is a follower of Jesus Christ who is weak in faith and has grown discouraged and defeated in their Christian life because they have refused to apply and appropriate the teaching of chapter 6 and instead are attempting to utilize the law to restrain their sin. What will such attempts bring in a man's life? How about verse 24? Wretched man that I am. Who will set me free from the body of this death? This cry of agony is on the lips of a believer who is so discouraged and so crushed by their failure to break sin's control of their life. And the reason is is because they are attempting it in their own power by the law of God. It is by virtue of our union with Jesus Christ that the requirement of the law has been fulfilled in us. Chapter 8, verse 4 and following. What is the answer to the pull of sin? The answer is Christ. The answer is Christ. Verse 25, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Paul then moves in chapter 8, still talking about eternal life, to begin to look forward now. He looks forward. He says, we have eternal life. Chapter 6, we we have the power of the gospel within us to say no to sin and yes to righteousness. But the problem is we still live in sinful bodies. Verses 9 through 17, chapter 8. We still live in these human bodies with all of their passions, with all of their proclivities, with all of their their habits that once ran towards unrighteousness. And it's a real problem. And beyond that, we're walking around in a broken world, verses 18 to 25, right? The creation groans, he says. So we are in... Sinful bodies living in a broken world, and sometimes it just doesn't really feel that much like eternal life. What is the solution to this painful reality? The solution is, again, faith. It is to believe. It is to grab hold by faith to the promise of God that He is working in you for His glory and our good. Chapter 8 and verse 28. We know that God does what? He causes all things to work together for good. He doesn't say there that all things are good. He says that God causes all things to work together for good. That is, that God's grace superabounds over the evil of life, bringing about His good. He is relentlessly changing us through His Spirit into the likeness of Jesus Christ. Verse 29, for whom He foreknew, He also predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son. God is changing me and God is changing you if His Spirit resides within you today. 
You are by faith to grab a hold of that. You are to hang on to it tenaciously. You are not to let it go, regardless of what's going on with your life. I don't care how bad it is or gets. The Word of God tells me that He is working in you. And you must believe it too. And beloved, when He's done, when He's done working in you, He will glorify you. Verse 30, whom He predestined, these He called, whom He called, these He justified, whom He justified, these He also, what? Glorified. He will complete that which He has begun in you. Paul speaks of it as a, as a done deal, as a present reality. In fact, Paul is so absolutely sure that God's purposes are going to come to pass in our lives that verses 38 and 39 can be penned, which says, I'm convinced. I stand convinced. Neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Wow. We are at a mountaintop right now. We are at a mountaintop. It doesn't get any better than that, does it? But here from this mountaintop, as we survey the scriptures, if we're thoughtful, we see a problem. There's a problem here. There's something in the back of our mind that is that is nagging away. And what's nagging away is Israel. Wait a minute, Paul. Wait a minute, Paul. You make these statements with such certainty. Nothing will separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. Nothing. We are predestined. We are chosen we're going to be glorified. All of this, Paul, you can say all of this, but what about God's chosen people, Israel? What about them? Beloved, the issue here is the integrity of God. If God can't hold on to Israel, what makes you think he can hold on to you? They have a covenant with him, don't they? Doesn't he say, I chose you? among all the peoples of the earth? That I have set myself for your benefit? That I will save you? That I will give you an eternal kingdom? What about Israel? Did their unbelief somehow cancel the promises of God? Is that what happened? Is God's word that weak? Is his arm that short? Is his grip that flimsy that he can't hang on? Well, you know Paul's answer, right? It's a resounding no. No. And so in chapters 9 through 11, 9 through 11, Paul's gospel resolves the problem of Israel. He resolves the problem of Israel. He does it in three ways here. And he does it, by the way, with a heart filled with love for his people. He begins these chapters, 9, 10, and 11, by, by pouring out his heart, his grief. This is not merely a, an academic theological presentation, although it contains some of the deepest theological water that a, that a person could ever try to wade through. But it is not merely academic. It is not detached. It is not impassionate. It is a man's heart that is bleeding on behalf of his kinsmen. But he addresses it beginning in chapter 9. And he says Israel's fall is first off due to the election of God. Israel's fall is due to the election of God. He does this by reminding us his readers and us, that God is sovereign and he chooses who he will save. And he does so not based on human merit or heritage, verses 6 through 13. It has nothing to do with what they have done or will do. It has nothing to do with who their parents are. It has everything to do with the sovereign choice of God. 
Now, we may not like this. In fact, if we're honest, we don't like this. We don't like this. We think it's not fair. And Paul anticipates that very objection and handles it. But he says that it is consistent with what it means to be God, verses 19 to 21. He speaks of the potter and the clay, as well as the Old Testament narrative itself, verses 14 to 18, right? The story of Pharaoh. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. Who are you, O man, to answer back to God? This is God's character. This is consistent with who he is. Therefore, beloved, at one level, the fall of Israel, the answer is, why why did Israel fall away? Why did Israel refuse their Messiah? Why did Israel crucify the Holy One of God? The answer is that it is the sovereign plan of God. It is the sovereign plan of God. But it doesn't rest there. It doesn't end there. It's bigger than that. It's deeper than that. It's more complex than that. Chapter 10 picks that up. Israel's Israel's fault is disobedience. Their fall is God's sovereign election. It's their fault through disobedience. The unsearchable, inscrutable sovereignty of God is part of the answer, but the nation itself has willfully refused to heed the gospel and has instead chosen to try to earn their own way into heaven. Chapter 10, verses 2 and 3. I bear them witness. They have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge, for not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own. They did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. But they could repent. They could turn to God in Christ. The gospel is not far from them. It is right close up at hand. If they will confess with their mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in their heart that God has raised him from the dead, then they shall be saved. In fact, the scripture says, verse 13, whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Israel, it's right there in front of you. But she remains, verse 21, disobedient and obstinate. Disobedient and obstinate. She will not repent. Well, I say then, God has not rejected his people, has he? I mean, in light of all of this, that is her stubborn and obstinate refusal to repent and believe in God's sovereign plan by which she has been cut off. Is that it for her? 11.1. May get it, May it never be. No, 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 no. And so we enter into chapter 11. Israel's future restoration. Wow, this blows you away. This blows you away. In the plan of God, listen to me, in the plan of God, Gentile faith is designed to make Israel jealous. Jealous. Verses 11 to 14. Salvation, the end of verse 11, has come to the Gentiles to make them, that is Israel, jealous. Jealous. God has set Israel aside for a time. He has opened the floodgates wide to the Gentiles. They have come pouring in. And he says that it is designed to make Israel jealous. Therefore, therefore, you Gentiles, do not be arrogant. Do not be condescending towards Israel because you benefit from their Abrahamic covenant. You are the wild branches grafted in. They are the natural branches broken off and they can be grafted back in again. Listen, if God could graft in a wild branch like you, he can certainly put the natural branch back in. Yes. 
Verse 20, do not be conceited, but fear. Do not be conceited, but fear. Verse 18, do not be arrogant towards the branches. Oh, does the church need to hear this today? They needed to hear it 20 centuries ago. We need to hear it today. God has not saved us because we are superior to the Jewish people. God has not saved us because we are more savable than the Jewish people. God has not saved us because our hearts are somehow not as hard as theirs. God has saved us for one reason and one reason alone. That is to display his glory throughout the universe and to draw his people back to himself. It is a mystery. It is a mystery. Verse 25. I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery. Why? Lest you be wise in your own estimation. Lest you think you've got it figured out. That a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in and thus all Israel will be saved. That was our launching point for things to come. This whole thing is one great big mystery. One great big mystery. God setting Israel aside for a time. Throwing open the gates to the Gentiles. They pour in in Gentile conversion. And yet someday at a point in time, call here the fullness of the Gentiles. That is when the last Gentile has been saved, God will be done with the Gentiles and he will turn back to his nation Israel and he will gather them in. Why? Why will he do this? Verse 29. For the gifts and the calling of God are, are irrevocable. They're irrevocable. They cannot be canceled. Now that should excite you. That should excite you. Because if he cannot and will not cancel his promises to Israel, beloved, then he cannot and he will not cancel his promise to you. Your salvation, the security of your salvation depends. Listen to me. It depends on God keeping his word with Israel. This is no small matter. This is the gospel of the kingdom. Anything less is a truncated version. How do we respond to all this? How in the world do we respond to all this? I mean, in light of man's depravity, in light of God's free gift of justification by faith alone, in light of the reality that the bondage of sin has been snapped it has been fractured it has been broken in my life and i now have within me the power to say no to sin and yes to god in light of the reality that he has promised me everlasting life and in light of the reality that he is gathering back someday his chosen people to himself how do i respond same way paul does the same way Paul does. In your bulletin, I included a written handout. I want you to take it out if you don't have it out now. Flip it over to the back. Because you and I are going to respond in the exact same way. We're going to read it together out loud. Beginning in verse 33. How do we respond? What are we to say in light of all of this? Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who became his counselor or who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him again? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Amen.
Amen. Amen. You're dismissed.